The title for this morning's message actually doesn't come from John chapter 9, and many of you, I'm sure, recognized it. It is, neither are your ways my ways. It is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 55. I would like to read to you verses 8 and 9. There in a passage that deals with the mercy of God, we read these words from Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Should you leave here this morning with nothing else, I hope you take those verses with you. God's thoughts are way above our thoughts, higher than our thoughts. God's ways are much different and much higher than ours. It echoes the thoughts of our responsive reading that we just read in chapter 40 of Isaiah, where it dealt with the reality of how the nations are really as a drop in the bucket. We, we saw from that passage that if you want to know who created the stars and calls them by name, it is our Creator. And he is so far above us, he raises up kings and moves them down. The same thought is found in the book of Romans in the New Testament. I will read to you Romans chapter 11. Because in Romans chapter 11, most familiar passage, again dealing with the nation of Israel and the Gentiles also, how God is using them right now. But then in thinking about your own salvation, you might meditate for a moment or two on this verse, or these two verses, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? And that echoes what we just saw in Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, we see that really no one can go up to that. And yet, as we come to this passage this morning in John, I want to remind us of the fact that really we are, are we not creatures of habits? It is true. Uh, For example, I wonder what would happen if some Sunday morning you came in and somebody was sitting in your seat. What do you mean, my seat? Yeah, that's kind of how we are. You know, what right do they have to sit there? I sit there. They know I sit there every week. You know, we'd probably end up leaving. We wouldn't know where to sit. We wouldn't realize there's, you know, many other places you can sit today and so forth. You might try this, by the way, as a little side trip. You might get a little scared by it, but you might try moving your seats around. I might get lost when I look out at you or something. I don't know. But uh, we are creatures of habit. It is built into us. And those often who claim the name of God, whether we realize it or not, we think that way frequently in regards to God. We think that he is a creature of habit. We wouldn't say that, but often it is true. And I want to say right at the outset, we cannot put God in a box. We cannot put God in our box that we think everything should go such and such a way. We do that often. And it is partly because of some of the things that God has done in our own lives. Frequently, we think that God must do things the same exact way for everybody else the way he's done it for me. 
We wouldn't say that again, but often that's the way we think. The way he does things in our lives or the way he answers prayers must be the way he answers prayers in someone else's life. Must be the way he does things. And uh, sometimes that is because we put expectations on God that really are not found in the Word of God. It is as if God, if you will, must do the same thing the same way all the time or he's not God. I want to remind you of something that I'm sure most of you who've come to this church are very familiar with, and that is that is exactly the way the Pharisees thought. That is one of the biggest problems with the Pharisees. They had God in their little box, and if anything deviated from that, then it wasn't of God. It wasn't him that was leading, and we need to be careful. Today we have the expression that we need to think outside the box. Oftentimes if you get a job Today, they're looking for people that, quote-unquote, are thinking outside of the box so that maybe the company can go in a different direction and it can help people because ideas get stale and so forth. Well, we want to realize a couple of things this morning. Uh, First of all, there are some things that do not change and will never change with God. Do we not read in the Word of God that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever? Yes. God's essence does not change. That will never change with God. Not in his essence. His character does not change. God is ever merciful. God is ever just. God is ever loving. God is ever kind. So God's character and the attributes as we would study them of God, we need to realize that's not going to change. God doesn't change in those ways at all. So we need to be careful. And... uh, Uh, He does not, for example, change when he's decreed something. If he decrees something and it's direct command of God, that will never change. That is why frequently in the Psalms, in Proverbs, in the book of Revelation, as the word of God closes back in Deuteronomy, in all of those sections you have verses that warn you not to add or to delete from what God has said, lest you be found a liar. And in effect, if we're all honest, we all do that from time to time. We think we know what the Word of God says, and it's really not what he says. We've built it off traditions or whatever. So there are certain things that never change with God, and we need to realize that. However, when it comes to, listen, the way, when it comes to the way that God does things, we need to be careful. Because God frequently, first of all, does things in ways that we would never think of even doing it. God frequently, in what he does, the ways he does things, he does them in ways that we would never think possible. or never even considered doing them that way. And he often, in the way he does things, does them differently. Let me try to illustrate that to you, and it's all going to relate to this miracle, believe it or not, in John chapter 9. But I want you to understand this foundation. For example, with creation, first of all, he does things differently than we would have ever thought. How? God spoke, and it happened. How did we get the sun there? God spoke it into being. How did we get the division of the sea and everything else. God spoke it into being. And another example with creation. 
plants were created on the third day. Did you know that? Guess when the sun was created? On the fourth day. Talk to scientists about that one today. See how far that goes. Plants without sun? Yes, God created the plants. He did it just in a way that man would have never conceived. By the way, the concept of your ancestors coming out of the sea and the ocean, as scientists would say, and the amoeba and all of that stuff that's got to do with evolution, guess what, folks? Birds were created on the fifth day. Okay? What does that mean? Cattle and land animals came on the sixth. That is contrary to all science and so forth and so on. So you begin to see that God created how? By speaking. And yet, have we not learned in our study in this particular gospel account that God can also feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread? He doesn't have to. He could have spoken that bread into existence. He didn't do it. He used something, and so he did it differently, and it was a different creative act, if you will, of God in even providing. We find out, for example, with Abraham, that God promised him a child through him. And aren't you glad about this, guys and ladies, that it's not always the same way? Because his promised child came when Abraham was 100, and Sarah was 90. But does he always bring the promised child? Well, first of all, there's only one promised child as far as Christ goes. But does he always bring children into the world when people are 100 years old? Thankfully not. In fact, I want you to know that, by the way, even in relationship to what I'm talking about, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, came through a teenager named Mary. So there was a big difference in time. He doesn't do things the same way all the time. He used Jacob... As we go through the word of God, he used Jacob to form the nation of Israel. He said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. That is one way. Does God always operate that way? Does he only work through people that way? Well, he even used an unsaved man by the name of Pharaoh in another situation to deliver his people, to harden his heart, to accomplish his purposes. He used David to slay Goliath. He used David to become king. And yet in another incidence, he used Samson. And he used a mixed marriage, which the word of God says that God was in it. And he used it to beat the Philistines. We would not think that that is possible, that God would use one situation this way and another one the other way. At times, he used the whole nation of Israel. Other times, he used 300 people with Gideon. It was different situations. We find out that he used Peter to be an apostle. But we also found out that he uses someone who hated Christians. And that was a man by the name of Saul, who he would later change the name to Paul, who turns out to be a great disciple, a great apostle. He uses the Gentiles to talk to the Jews about being the Messiah. Who would have ever thought of that as part of a plan? And yet... When it comes to the tribulation, which we're studying on Sunday nights, we find out that he uses 144,000 Jews to speak to those during the tribulation period. Isn't it interesting? God doesn't do the same thing all the time, the same way, nor does he do it the way that we would think. And certainly, when it comes to salvation, that is true. 
There is no human being on the face of the earth that would ever devise a plan of salvation as being by grace through faith and being that a God, a creator of the universe, would take on flesh and die to provide forgiveness of sins. Only God would do that. And so God's ways are not our ways. In our context, he's using a blind man to demonstrate the work of God. Now, last week we were in this text, and we only got through verse 5. We started to look at the miracle of this blind man. And we noticed that it was an unmistakable situation. In what way? He was blind from birth. This was not due to an accident. This was not due to anything else. It was from birth. We also noted and spent time on the fact that it was not a result of sin. That's very clear from verse 2. Why was this here? It is here to demonstrate the works of God, verse 3. And it is also to authenticate that Jesus is the Messiah, verses 4 and 5. So it's to show the works of God and to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So this week we pick it up in verse 6. And I went through that information on God doing things different from what we might think sometimes as far as his ways because of what we're going to see here in just a moment. Now we pick it up in verse 6. In verses 6 and 7, we look at the unorthodox solution for this miracle. Look at the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 6. First of all, he says, And when he had said this, when he had said what? Verse 5, I am the light of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ had just claimed to be the light of the world. He also has claimed to be the one sent from the Father, and that he is here to do the will of of the Father. And we find in, in this verse that he introduces that as after saying that he is the light of the world, he's going to do something. I want you to notice something. There is no indication that this man asked to be healed. Is there? No. This wasn't a case of him going to Jesus Christ. This is not a case of his disciples. We spent time on that last week. It's not a case of his disciples even taking the man to Jesus. In fact, they're being critical of the situation. Nor is it anything like that, but it's Jesus that is going to the man to heal him. Now, he could have, could he not have just spoken and healed him? Yes, he could have. He could have ignored the man. He could have sent him to doctors. He could have gathered a crowd around, and I'm saying some of these things because that's what you hear today gathered a crowd around so they could see this healing service that was going to go on. He could have given him the plan of salvation. Honestly, there are those who would look at this passage and say, Jesus failed. He healed the guy, but he didn't talk to him about salvation yet. And that's our concept right away. We think, and by the way, there is a place for lifestyle evangelism, for people, your neighbors and so forth, letting them see Christ in you first. He could have done all of those things, but he didn't do it. What was his actions? He spat on the ground, verse 6. He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied it to the clay, that is the clay, to his eyes. Now, people have thought, it's been interesting to do some reading on this, there are some that thought that there is healing in the human uh, saliva and so forth. Whether there is or there isn't, I'm not a medical doctor, but I'll tell you this, it had nothing to do with that. Also, we find out that as you go through history that, and you do some reading that the Pharisees 
thought of that as being disgusting, that anyone would use spittle and then put it on another person. And some commentators believe that that's exactly why the Lord Jesus Christ did it, because it was going to be another confrontation with the Pharisees. It's possible. Some believe that he did this because of Genesis. What is that? Man was made of dust, so again he was demonstrating that process. What I would say to you is this. He did it this way because he did it this way, plain and simple. And forget trying to analyze all of those things. It's period. He just spat on the ground and chose to use this methodology this time. Other times, last week I gave you a text in Matthew chapter 9, he simply touched a man's eyes and they were healed. We look at other texts and we find out that he spoke and a man could see. We look at other texts in the New Testament and we find out that there were times in which it doesn't tell us how he healed the blind men. But it says that they brought the blind to him and they were all healed. And I'm pointing out to you exactly what I've demonstrated earlier. He does things different ways at different times. He doesn't have to go according to our schedule. But what he did do was he spat on the ground and he covered the man's eyes. And then he says this. He gives a command. Go and wash in verse 7. He tells him to go wash. It seems strange to us that he would do that, doesn't it? It did to me. Spit in the ground, take some clay, put it on his eyes. He's got the power to just speak out. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. That, by the way, is just outside of the city of David. And it's at the exit of Hezekiah's tunnel. And it's in the southeast or southwest section, depending upon how you're looking at it, uh, from the Kindred Valley and so forth. And that's where it is. And that has translated what? Sent. Jesus Christ has been sent from the Father to do the will of God. Now he sends this man who is blind and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now that's interesting. What would you do if God said that to you? Oh, I'd go run down and do it. Really? Sometimes if God doesn't do the things the way we expect him to, we think it's strange. I want to see, show you that in a demonstration. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. I believe that's why we have all of these different miracles in Scripture. God doesn't do it the same way all the time. I think this is a picture of sometimes how we react. 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. By the way, the man is Nahum in this passage. You'll see it in verse 10. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, say, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times in your flesh. This is, his, his, obviously, he had been affected by this, a leper. And the, the king was in trouble as far as his condition. And he sends for Elijah, and Elijah says, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Nahum was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Farpar, uh, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers uh, of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? 
So he turned and went away in a rage. God wasn't going to do things his way. And he went in what? A rage. And this servant comes along. By the way, his life was threatened because if the king didn't like what he said, he could have killed him. And yet he had the boldness in verse 13. Then his servant came near and spoke to him and said, uh, A master? He said, uh, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be cleaned? Then what happened? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The king was furious. Who does he think he is? Why didn't he come and do this miraculous scene and wave his hand in the air and do this tremendous thing that I expect him to do? That it wasn't the way God was going to do it in this situation. God was going to heal the man and the king by simply having him obey what the prophet said. And when you come back to John chapter 9, that's it. He says in John chapter 9, I want you to go and to wash, but I want to give you an application here that I think is important for us today. What about salvation? Let me just deal with that for a second. That's where man is with salvation. Man wants God to do things his way, or he won't take it. Really? If you see that God says that salvation is by grace through faith, which it is, man's reaction to that is he's appalled. What do you mean it's a gift? It is a gift. What do you mean it's all of God? It is all of God. What do you mean God took on flesh? He did take on flesh. That is absolutely resisted by the unsaved mind. And yet, if God were to say, do the best you can, man would say, that sounds right. Work hard. Be religious. Read your Bible every day. Get involved in the sacraments. Do good works, and that will get you to heaven. Man would accept that. But we had the, it's interesting, I didn't tell whoever put that verse up there that I was going to be using it, but we had 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in our meditation this morning. Would you turn with me to that passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're here today and have not yet trusted in Christ, or you think that God's way is foolish, that God would take on flesh, or to think that it's by grace, or salvation is a gift when your feeling is it's something that should be earned, I want you to see that God's way is that it's by grace through faith, and it's your thinking that's foolish. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, what? Foolishness. You see, our ways are not God's ways. Our God's ways are not our ways. But to us who are believing, what, are being saved, what? It is the power of God. That is God's method. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? That's the verse that was up. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom 
did not come to know God. God was well pleased, what? Through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God doesn't do things man's way. Now watch verse 22. For indeed the Jew asks for signs. The Greeks search after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. You see, man looks at God's solution for salvation and says it's foolish. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he reminds us of this. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. God has chosen you and I, if you're saved this morning. We are the base things, the foolish things, to make wise the wisdom of God to the unsaved. And God's way of salvation appears to be foolish to man. He doesn't want anything to do with a God taking on flesh, a cross and a sacrifice. Rather, he would rather do things for himself. God doesn't do, do things our way. And that's what you have with this miracle. Go back to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, he didn't do it the way man expected. And yet what happened? In John chapter 9, I want you to notice in verse 7, he went his way, he washed, and what happened? What happened? Came back seeing. He saw. Would he have seen if he did not go? Would he? No. No. Obedience. Obedience. Trust and obey. We sing that song all the time. God had made the way, but this man had to follow. I come right back to salvation. God has provided salvation, but if you don't by faith trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't see the lights. If this man had just let the if you will, the clay and the spittle stay in his eyes and didn't go down to the pool of Siloam, he wouldn't have been healed. And of course, as we're going to see as the chapter goes on, it becomes foolishness to the Pharisees because they're going to question this over and over and over again. And I want to tell you as a believer, those of you that know Christ, faith works this way. Faith is believing, but believing is demonstrated by its actions. When it comes to salvation, you can say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a phone call this weekend, and I got back to, it was a pastor that called me and asked me a question on counseling with somebody. And as the person talked to me, I said to the pastor, you know what? I would tell that person there's no evidence that you're saved. Why? He said, but they make a profession of faith. I said, everything that you have told me about that individual lines up with an unsaved person. There's no evidence of salvation. Salvation is action. That's why in 1 John we have such a passage as, if you say that you believe God and you don't obey my commandments, you are a liar. The truth is not in you. If you want to find out if you're a true believer, go to 1 John. Not just a profession of faith, the life has to line up. There's obedience. That's what James is all about. 
Faith is demonstrated by works. Faith without works, it's dead. You can profess faith in Christ, and if there's no life to support it, you're not a believer. That's what he says. It'll be demonstrated. And even in coming, so in coming to faith, if you're going to say you trust in Christ, you will follow him. You will accept the gift. And as believers, we will demonstrate our love for Christ. We will demonstrate the reality of our faith by our works. This man obeyed. He went and he followed and he came back seen. This leads us to an undeniable result. What? He could see. Christ had just said in verse 5 that he was the light of the world. And now in verses 6 and 7, he demonstrates that through a physical miracle. Here is a man, now listen to this, a man that was blind physically and is now going to be able to see. And around him, there are people who are professing to be in the lights and certainly can see physically, but they cannot see spiritually. They cannot see who's in front of them. His own disciples, as we talked about it last week, couldn't see and have enough discernment to bring this man to Christ. The Pharisees who are going to claim to know the Word of God and know the Old Testament are blind to the reality of the Messiah and the miracle that he's going to perform. It's a whole picture of him being the light of the world. At this stage, all we're going to see is he's brought to physical light to begin with. The man was healed. He was able to now see perfectly. He didn't have to go to the doctor's. He didn't have to wear glasses like I have on this morning. Not at all. He could see. So we come to verse 8. The undeniable result. The neighbors, therefore. And that word neighbors means exactly how you would use it today and I would use it. It literally means those who were nearby. That's what the word means. They knew him. They saw him begging, verse 8. They knew who this guy was. And they said, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? They saw the evidence. They were overwhelmed. This was not an accident. This was someone that was blind from birth. Others who couldn't accept it began to make excuses. Look at verse 9. This is he. Still others were saying, no, you know, he looks like him, but I don't think he's the real guy. So what have you got? Verse 9, he says, I am the one. It's an imperfect tense. He continually had to tell them because they didn't want to accept what God had done. And I pause for a second on that, again, to come back to what I laid down for a foundation. Sometimes we as believers, because God does something outside of our box, I'm not talking about his essence. I'm not talking about his direct commands of Scripture. I'm not talking about his character. But the way he does certain things, if he does something that's a little different in somebody's life, We want to reject it. We don't want to receive it. These people didn't want to receive it. And he kept on saying, I'm the one. I am that one. I was the one that begged. I was the one that was there, that couldn't see. And now, physically, he could see. By the way, he couldn't see yet spiritually. How do I know that? Go to chapter 9, verse 35. And by the way, We're not going to see Jesus again until verse 35. Everything in between is a discussion about what he had performed in verses 6 and 7. But in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had put him out 
We're going to see that's the blind man that's been made to see. Finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and hold on to this for a second. He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? In verse 37, he said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And then what happens in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. But back in verse 8, he's not saved yet, as we would put the term. His spiritual eyes have not been opened, but his physical eyes have been. It's interesting because if you go back to chapter 9 now, verse 9, he says, I'm the one. And now they question him in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, they're saying to him, how are your eyes open? He answered and said, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. They said to him, where is he? Notice what he says. I don't know. Why? I don't even believe that he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he was blind from birth. The Lord told him to go, and he obeyed, and he walked away from the presence of Jesus. I don't think he could identify him in the crowd. He hasn't even seen him, but he obeyed. He obeyed what, he, what God told him to do, Lord Jesus Christ, and what happened? Exactly what God said would happen, happened. He could see. He didn't even know where he was or who he was. And we find that from the conversation that I just turned you to in chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus said, you've both seen him now. He could see him physically. He was talking to Jesus and didn't even know that that was the Son of Man. Didn't know that he was God. And so later on, he'll come to spiritual insights. What are we saying? We've got a miracle now that we've looked at that is an unmistakable miracle. It was one that he was blind from birth and God healed him. Why? To show us that not all, as we saw last week, not all infirmities, not all trials, not all things are from sin. Some things are done because God is going to get glory through them. This miracle also authenticates who the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a physical demonstration that he's the light of the world that can bring sight to the blind. But I say to you again today, he can bring sight to the blind spiritually. If you're without Christ, God's way is not our ways. God's way is through one man, one sacrifice, one faith and one means that is the Lord Jesus Christ salvation can come and only through one's means we're living in a world in which man has got all kinds of religion all kinds of mountains to climb all kinds of good works to do and they think that's going to get them to god it will not if you're here today and haven't trusted in christ this may sound foolish to you but god's ways are not our ways the only way of salvation is for you to come through faith in jesus christ and unless you take action on what you've heard and believe it, just like this man had to take action on the words of Christ, you will not receive the benefit of sight spiritually. But I also address believers today, including myself. Be careful about putting God in a box. Be careful about thinking, because God's worked this way in my life, that's the only way he can work in someone else's life. Or that's the only way he can do things. Sometimes that becomes our worst enemy. God doesn't think the way we do all the time. 
God is not limited in the way that he can accomplish things. He won't go contrary to his word. And there's a lifestyle evangelism that we ought to be involved in. God took care of the physical aspect of this man first. Do you know there are those around us who we pray for? Honestly. We pray for and we trust they're going to come to salvation. And maybe we even invite them out to church and so forth. But have you ever tried comforting them when they're in sorrow? Bringing a meal over when they're in sickness? Reaching out to them in their physical needs first so that they can see God in you and be drawn? This man's not going to come to salvation until verse 35 through 38. But nevertheless, God not only is a lesson to his disciples and an authentication of who Jesus Christ is did this miracle, but also to meet out of compassion the need of this man. And we need to be there and available. We need to trust in God for his daily provisions in our life. We need to trust in God that he can meet our needs and may meet them differently than the way we thought he should meet them. That's what he did here. My God help us to have compassion on those who are lost, even in their physical needs, even in their needs for this world and to get by. But might we bring them to the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able not only to help them physically, but to help them spiritually. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for this miracle. But help us to look way beyond the physical miracle. You did this one in a different way that you did many other miracles, even in the gospel accounts. You had compassion on this man that the works of God might be made manifest. And what you did was a puzzle to those that were around this man, and certainly as we will see in the future to the leadership. But Father, this man could testify to the fact that he didn't even know where the person was, but he knew it was the man named Jesus who had healed him. And Father, even in our lives, there's things that you do in our lives that we should point people to Jesus Christ. And Father, so often we're not compassionate on those around us. We're not aware of their circumstances, nor are we aware of our mighty God and the way you can do things. Help us, Father, not to put you into a box even in relationship to the way that you'll accomplish things in our own personal lives or in the lives of others. And help us, Father, to proclaim the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, though it may be foolishness even to those that are around us, for that is your way. That is where people can come to the light of the world and be given spiritual life. Thank you for this time, and we pray that you'd just encourage us in our walk throughout the week this week as we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.